When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel, we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. We are getting really, really close to the start of free agency, and great person to talk with about it is Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrated. Of course, does great work over there, including the Breakaway Podcast. And I wanted to do something different. Rob and I both talked plenty about the offseason in our various forms, but instead of focusing on what will happen, we talked more about what should happen and what we would like to see and some of the opportunities that have presented themselves this offseason. So we go more in that direction than predictions. If you want that, you can go a million other places for it. And this podcast is brought to you by Quip, new sponsor of the show. I'm a huge fan of their toothbrushes. Go to getquip.com slash realgm and you can get a f- your first refill pack for free. Also, our friends at TrueCar. TrueCar, a great place to buy new and used cars. And also want to remind you to check out the podcast survey to fill it out. Go to podcast1.com slash my survey or go to podcast one and check out the survey banner. Great way to support the show. This episode runs a little bit over an hour. I think you'll really enjoy it. We tried to do something a little bit different and I think we succeeded. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. The two of us have spent plenty of time predicting and, you know, making all those sorts of pronouncements and prognostications on the offseason. And I'm sure we'll do a little bit of that here. But I thought what would be a more interesting place to start is more about what we want to see for whatever grounds you want to use for entertainment value, for our work or anything else. And that's something that we don't talk about as much. It is a little bit different. And I guess the place to begin with all of that is with LeBron James. Yeah, I think from LeBron's perspective, personally speaking, just as a basketball fan, you know, having seen his game grow and the way it's changed and kind of where it fits into a team now, I would kind of love to see him on the Rockets. And that's a, you know, an outcome I feel like is getting further and further, you know, more and more far-fetched as we go, just given that it's going to have to be a trade to get him there, what, you know, Houston would have to move or move off of to make that happen. But just from the perspective of how he would fit into that offense, you know, I think we kind of saw it in its own way in Cleveland, Cleveland over the course of the playoffs where, you know, the way he attacks mismatches, the 3-1 pick and rolls that he ran in, in Cleveland over the course of the playoffs was not dissimilar at all from what Houston was running. The difference is that's a team that has the spacing to maximize that, the defensive system to really, you know, engage LeBron and put him at full bore, and then the stars around him to both kind of relieve his burden but also to have him relieve theirs. You know, I would be fascinated to watch any team that has, you know, three passers as good as Paul and Harden and LeBron on the same team. But I think that one in particular, especially with the prospect of coming against the Warriors in the Western Conference Finals, would be just awesome to see. Yeah, I've referred to the Rockets in their current iteration as a basketball experiment, just with the way that they handle had to handle Chris Paul and James Harden. And I thought D'Antoni has handled that really deftly. I mean, with the stagger, but then also those two guys have really succeeded playing on and off each other when they've needed to go that direction. And Maury also did a nice job building out the depth of that team. That would actually be a bigger challenge with adding LeBron, because as you said, they would have to give up a lot to make that happen. And 
it would be really fascinating, and it would also tie in with this idea that we've heard get, heard get a little bit of credence at this point, which is that maybe LeBron is thinking about his day-to-day role a little bit differently. I'm still of the believe-it-when-I-see-it mode with that, just because the team that they created in Cleveland on the fly didn't look anything like that idea of a passive LeBron. They traded away the guys you could defend other forwards. They traded away a lot of the other ball handler type guys, except for Jordan Clarkson, which is its own thing. And, you know, that team ended up making it all the way to the finals because of a superhuman effort by LeBron. So that would be absolutely fascinating to see and what kind of what he wants to be as he enters his mid-30s. Absolutely. And I think that's one area where if if you're going to have LeBron materially change the way he plays in any way, and he's a guy who wants to exert a certain level of control over the game, over an organization, over everything... I think putting him with not only other stars, but especially a star in Paul who he knows and respects and has been friends with for a long time. And then in Harden, you know, the reigning MVP and a guy who has just been really stellar in recent seasons. I think the combination there from not just a chemistry standpoint, but from, you know, kind of a pecking order, authority, distribution of responsibility standpoint would really set up LeBron to do some healthy things for his career, where ultimately he's a guy who he can be your offense and he can be absolutely awesome at that. But I love watching LeBron cut off the ball. I love watching him run in transition, you know, run the lanes in transition, not just pushing up the middle of the floor. And to see him be able to fill that kind of role again where, you know, he's not just going to trust anybody to run an offense alongside him. I think that's pretty clear at this point. But if you get the star power along, you know, the star power in there and guys who are really talented and really capable playmakers in their own right, then that mix could just be pretty devastating. For me, the the big thing that would outpace that, and this is beyond the LeBron James part of it, would be if LeBron, Paul George, and a third person, presumably that would be Kawhi Leonard, teamed up in L.A. And the reason why it would take all of that to supersede the LeBron and Houston idea is just because anything less than that for the Lakers, assuming it's not like Chris Paul and they take him away from the Rockets, would be creating a team that still has lots of talent, has a high ceiling, and be interested in seeing from a basketball perspective, but that wouldn't be one of the two best teams in the West. And when you added those three guys together, we could be in that conversation, and that's where it really where it really starts to get interesting. To me, LeBron and Paul George, you could build a really good team around those guys, and especially sort of paralleling what happened with the Miami Heat in 2010, it would probably take a couple years with mid-level exceptions and all of that sort of stuff to build the kind of the full team around them, maybe even through trade or whatever. But if it was those three guys together, they would be at that level. There's also something really fun and refreshing about when those kinds of teams come together in that kind of way when they're so new that, you know, the first 15 to 20 games of the Miami Heat when LeBron and Wade and Bosch were together, or even even this Rockets team last year in terms of figuring out just seeing how Paul and Harden were going to play off each other. So to see something that, that that's that different for everyone involved, where Paul George and Kawhi and LeBron have really never played alongside players that similar to them before in a lot of ways that are going to be filling some of the same spots, but at the same time have very different skill sets. I would love to watch those guys figure it, you know, kind of figure each other out. And obviously the Embiid part of it would be very different, but some of the LeBron playing defense parts that are appealing about the Sixers, because LeBron wouldn't have to be guarding the other team's best perimeter player, all of that. That is very different in LA because in LA I think they would have more shooting around them. Also, the the talent fits together more, even though Kawhi has become better with the ball in his hands 
assuming he can get back to form than I ever anticipated, and he still has a lot of room to grow. I mean, we'll see what happened during this last, like, 16 months in the wilderness. But, yeah, the intellectual exercise of those three players figuring it out, and all of them have dealt with ball-dominant teammates, but not really guys like who they would be playing with, especially... Kawhi and Paul George with LeBron. And I would be just, you know, as you said, you know, like that first 15 to 20 games, I would be watching those more intently than I watched the Rockets at the beginning of this year. And I watched those Rockets teams a lot. It would be kind of interesting from a media standpoint too, just kind of the quote watching out of that team with LeBron being a guy who I feel like is always very careful with his messaging, very deliberate. He can be a little passive aggressive at times, but he definitely is uh, is pretty targeted in what he's putting out there from a messaging standpoint versus Paul George is a guy who shoots from the hip a lot, who will say, you know, go out there and say things, will air a team's laundry if he feels like he needs to. And then Kawhi over these last year, I think we're learning just how little we know about him as, you know, as a person in terms of what he wants out of a team, you know, a team situation and kind of his situation with the Spurs, I feel like has brought to the front the value and the impact of all the things that aren't said directly by a player. And so to see those three personalities kind of intersect, I think would make for some, uh, some pretty great theater as well. Going back in time a little bit, LeBron could make the argument to Kawhi, say, hey, if you really don't like talking to the media, the single best thing you could do is be the third guy on this Lakers team because I covered those, you know, the the, the Heatles. And Chris Bosh, great at talking to the media, you know, one of, one of my favorite guys to talk to. But he barely got any press, you know, day-to-day press attention because LeBron and Wade were such massive figures compared to a player of his stature, you know, a Hall of Famer, bona fide all-star, all-NBA contender. Like, Kawhi is, I I would say Kawhi, if he could get back to what he was two years ago, was a better player than Chris Bosh was as a member of the Heat, which is not to criticize Chris Bosh at all. But he would still get plenty of attention because of how that would happen, but it would certainly be less than in a lot of other destinations. What is your confidence level in, in Kawhi coming back this upcoming season at something approaching you know, full health, full strength? It's not high at the beginning of it because I genuinely don't know enough about this injury to really know what to expect. And for me, uncertainty really matters because we're talking about rarefied air here. I mean, Kawhi, you could make a very credible argument that per minute, Kawhi was the best player in the 2016-17 season. The reason he, I I mean, Nate and I did a whole podcast on this. The reason I didn't have him in my top three of the MVP was just that he played fewer minutes. And that's a lot to ask. So I I just need to see it for myself. I would love to hear positive things for a long time. But so, yeah, I I don't have a ton of confidence in the beginning. Now, if they can get some of it squared away, I have a lot more confidence that by the end of the season, let's say March, that they can have it more figured out. That makes sense. I mean, with those three especially... I mean, you would think at least on defense that Kawhi could still be, you know, say he's even 25% worse than he was, 30% worse. That's still probably one of the better perimeter defenders in the league. And when you have Paul George able to kind of relieve him from certain matchups, when you have LeBron's health, if he's engaged in playing, you know, the defense he's capable of playing, that team could be really fun to watch defensively. Well, yeah, and you have Paul George that would largely be, if Kawhi is engaged and as good as he was, in a similar situation to the Robertson time, at Oklahoma City, where he could be into it 
and and take on big assignments if he wanted to. I mean, I remember that great job he did against Victor Oladipo, though Robertson had a lot of big assignments. Paul George did a nice job there. And so he could engage when he wants to, disengage when he's kind of when he's doing more offensively or for whatever reason that night, and they would be able to get through it. And then the other reason why that LA trio would be so fascinating is they would have the openings on that five-man starting lineup would be at the one and at the five. The five is the supply capital of the free agent class. They could get somebody good, whether for the minimum or the room mid-level, whatever it's going to be. And then point guard, it would be a different circumstance in most teams because you would be looking for somebody who can defend ones ideally, but it could be a player who doesn't need to run the show. I mean, you could think about the difference between, you know, George Hill or going back even further like Norris Cole. You know, LeBron has done well with the players who can shoot, especially in catch-and-shoot circumstances, and it's great if they can create for themselves and others at times, but that their entire value is not derived from the ball being in their hands. That's really the value of LeBron, I think, too, from a team-building standpoint, especially when you're going into a free agency, you know, knowing you have his commitment and you have, as the Lakers do, kind of a blank slate situation where they're going to have a lot of young pieces they they can trade if they want to. They're going to have to make a decision on Randall, and then they're going to have to look at the pool of players and say, who do we want, who fits, who makes sense? And when you have LeBron on your team, you're just looking at a much wider swath of players. Because as you mentioned, you know, not only at the point guard spot, but, you know, you can play a Tristan Thompson type as your starting center and be fine. You can get, you know, guys who are really good shooters, but limited in other capacities, like a Kyle Korver, and they can be huge impact players. You know, the second or third best player on your team in a playoff series on, on your way to the finals. So that kind of flexibility, I think, could put the Lakers in a really interesting spot just because they would have so many options. And then going into next season, too, if they do get all three of those guys, I think all three, maybe for the first time in a while, are really highly motivated to give a shit all regular season. Where I think Paul George maybe had some of that this year, but Kawhi, I mean, when he comes back, is going to have something to prove. LeBron being in a new situation with new teammates, I think will be energized in a different way. Just the energy of that kind of team and that kind of mix, I think, could be really infectious. And when you talk about, you know, all the other new pieces that are going to have to be brought in, the creativity and the experimentation over the course of a year would, I mean, have to be the season's most interesting story. It would also create an absolutely mind-blowing incentive to finishing with the number one seed in the West, not necessarily to get home court, though certainly that would be useful, but because if we assume the Warriors, Rockets, and Lakers would then be the top three teams in the West, in all likelihood the top three teams in the NBA, depending on health, you really want to play only one of those teams rather than two. Yeah, who who would even be the compelling candidates for the four seed in the West that could make that interesting? I know, I mean, there are plenty of pretty good teams, but is there anyone that we think could jump to that level to be on the level of a of a Rockets or you know a star loaded Lakers team or a Warriors team? I don't think there's anyone that could really reach to that level. The one, as strange as this sounds, and I don't expect this because we're talking about ceiling plays here, would be if Minnesota could figure out their defense because Minnesota last year. They have some defensive talent. They also have some major, major flaws. But they were really successful offensively, and so maybe they could piece it together a little bit more on that end. Remember, OKC, if we're talking about this hypothetical, they would be functionally out. The Spurs would be functionally out. New Orleans I really like, but I just don't see them as as that type of team. Same with Portland. You know, Portland doesn't—they don't have that sixth gear. At least in their current form, it would be hard for them to do it because they don't have the type of assets to make it happen. So, no, I wouldn't expect to see one, and so maybe that would give— 
certain people more motivation to maybe change the format a little bit, but not very much, especially when it's three teams in one conference rather than two. There are a couple ideas. I'm actually going to write about this probably for Real GM at some point soon. Ideas about maybe restructuring just the end of the playoffs, but with three teams in the same conference, there isn't really much you could do other than reseeding, and we know why that's not going to happen because there is a whole conference of teams that have no benefit there. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, the Warriors play an interesting role in that conversation, too, especially since all the talk since their championship has been, okay, how do they get younger? How do they get guys who can help sustain over the course of a regular season and just kind of, you know, ease the minutes, reduce the minutes on their star guys? But if you have the Lakers and the Rockets breathing down your neck, and as you mentioned, you're looking at two, you know, drag-out series just to get out of the West— I think the calculus there becomes very different. Plenty more to talk about with Rob Mahoney, but I want to take a quick moment to tell you about a new sponsor of the show, but a product that I know very well and I'm thrilled to have on board, and that's Quip. The truth of the matter is that most of us are brushing our teeth wrong, whether that's not for enough time, forgetting to change our bristles on time, and a lot of that is because most brands focus on selling flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing, but not Quip. What makes Quip different is that it is an electric toothbrush that is a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibration to help clean your teeth. It also has a built-in timer to help you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. As somebody who's used a Quip toothbrush for more than a year, it, it really is impressive just how you can change your behavior by those little pulses and getting the timing right. And The other big part that Quip does differently, and I've loved this for my own purposes, is that they have subscription plans built around your health, not just convenience. So they deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months, and it's just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror, and it's a fantastic product. It is so much less bulky that it is easier. At first, when I got Quip, I thought, oh, this is a great travel toothbrush. That was my first thought because it's so much smaller. I've been using an electric toothbrush for years, but that was my first thought. It's so much better than that. That was that was me being thrilled for it in that element, but then it's, it's an everyday toothbrush. It is everything, and I've really, really been impressed with it. Backed by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists, hundreds of thousands of happy brushers who use Quip every day. That includes me, and you can check it out because you go to getquip.com slash realgm, and you can get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. So they started just $25 anyway, and then you get that first refill pack for free if you go to getquip.com slash realgm. I am thrilled to have them as a sponsor because I really like them as a product. So go to getquip.com slash realgm and check it out. Let's jump over to Paul George, not that it's necessarily a different conversation, but I think that his calculus in all of this is really interesting because of where he fits in with everybody else's decisions. So for me, if George goes with LeBron, then you know you, ha- you have something going there, and maybe they have a belief that they could add in a third guy, whether that's Kawhi or something else. But Kawhi being a part of it is complicated due to his trade circumstances, and so if Paul George commits to LA without LeBron going there or knowing LeBron is going somewhere else, that's complicated. That could be the Houston Rockets through an opt-in and trade or whatever. And so for me, if if you're getting in that point, certainly there are a lot of other elements to consider, you know, quality of life, whether, whether he wants to be in the LA area. I do think that it's interesting with people who are like, oh, he's from LA. Well, Palmdale is in the LA area. That is the closest NBA, the, the NBA teams there are the closest teams then, but it's not like right there, just like the stuff with Kawhi and Riverside. But 
to me, if if LeBron is going somewhere, or if Paul George isn't necessarily interested in going long, I really like Philadelphia as a landing point for him, just because what they're looking for is actually more similar to what Paul George is than LeBron. The problem is that LeBron is such a good player that you have to want him because he's the best player in the world right now. So, but I think a Paul George Philly marriage would be great because he can slide in wherever offensively they need him at that moment. And then defensively, again, the same idea of kick it into gear when you want, phase out if you want, and they have enough players to pick up the slack and kind of slide everybody into the right spots. No, I have the same the same destination circled. I think it just it makes too much sense from a basketball standpoint for him to at least think about it. You know, I understand the, the allure of L.A., you know, him staying in Oklahoma City has obviously come up a little bit more lately in terms of the reporting that he might really consider staying there. But the Sixers, if you if you just plug him into that J.J. Redick role, you'll see that the structures are already really there in place for him to thrive in a way that he can be a really prominent part of that offense. You know, Redick was their second highest shot taker per game last season, and he can do that and more. Not not so much as a pure, you know, come around the screen and shoot every time, but the flexibility to drive a little bit more, to make plays in that capacity. And he just so happens to be a great shooter coming off of curls in those situations as well. And so the versatility you get from that in having a guy who obviously you want to put the ball in Simmons and Embiid's hands and you want them to do creative things, but to have that secondary and tertiary playmaking on a team that at the same time isn't overstretching Paul George to do those things because if he's taking five and six and seven dribbles on a possession, that possession is probably going nowhere. I think that balance is is a really nice one for all parties involved. And with George, the the possibility of doing it's mostly been reported as a one plus one with the the Thunder. What my kind of question is is where does he see that going? You know, it, it would kind of put him in a holding pattern. Now there could be circumstances, especially let's say if LeBron goes to Houston, where he might not want to commit to LA without knowing what's coming. But that Oklahoma City team, certainly if Robertson had been healthy, they would have done better. But I don't think, you know, I guess you would be making that bet like, oh, they beat the Warriors twice. And they did play very, very well in those two wins. But to say they're anything beyond the third best team in the Western Conference is is kind of pushing it a little bit. And there isn't a reason to believe, especially when you consider the luxury tax pressure that Oklahoma City would be under if Paul George came back, that they would be better than they were this past year. It would only be that they could be healthier, which is significant, but a little bit different. Oh, definitely. And I think the one plus one angle for Paul George and for LeBron, too, as it relates to the Lakers, is a really fascinating conversation just because we've seen, obviously, LeBron do the one plus one. We've seen, you know, Durant sign with the Warriors on a short term deal. But we haven't seen anybody who's in that position really exercise their nuclear option to do the one year and leave. And if either of those guys were to go to L.A. and not like what they saw for whatever reason, I think it'd be really interesting to see, you know, what is what does that team say about LeBron if he comes there for a season and leaves or Paul George if he comes there for a season and leaves? You know, what happens if they trade a bunch of their young players because they think they're investing in a LeBron team for the next four years and they only get one year of LeBron? I think a lot of the kind of ripple effects of that kind of decision could be really fascinating, even though I'm sure it would kind of gut the Lakers in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it would put a lot of heat on the Lakers. It, let's say Paul George does a one plus one with the Thunder. I mean, I'm sure they, the Lakers would be sitting there looking at 2019 and saying, oh, look what we can do. The other team that that would put a lot of heat on is the Spurs, because 
at that point, there becomes a lot less pressure for the Lakers to acquire Kawhi via trade. Now, there could be a circumstance where having his bird rights as low value is... I, I would have to look at the actual numbers, but I believe that beyond the fifth year that his hold would be slightly smaller than his expected salary. So there's there's a little bit there. But there would also be this risk. I mean, going back to the whole Dwight Howard thing of trading for a guy with one year left on their contract with the anticipation of re-signing them and them doing it. It's not the same as the one plus one and leave like you talked about, but it is kind of the, it's the sibling of that. No, there's definitely some commonality in terms of the risk and understanding, you know, how all, how all the contingencies are going to play out. And, you know, Kawhi is an interesting guy to place from from that perspective, just in understanding what teams he's willing to jump on with, what teams he's even really interested in. And I don't think we have anything near an accurate gauge of you know what that market is. It would be it would be great if we did have that information, but you know, for now, I think we're just kind of rolling with oh, he happens to have some LA ties, oh, maybe he cares about this team or that team, but it seems all pretty t- tangential at this point. I mean, do we really need to spend much time with Durant or Chris Paul? Because it's go back to where they are, correct? Yeah, I'm, I'm good with rolling both of those situations back for sure. So then let's go to DeMarcus Cousins. Cousins is fascinating because I understand the appeal of him with the Pelicans. I also believe that the, the commentary of him being injured being a good thing for them is not true, especially with the strain it put on Anthony Davis. But there is this kind of parallel to it, which is where I am. And some people will see this as the same opinion, which it is not is that I think the Pelicans need a little bit less from a center just because their best end game is with Anthony Davis playing the position. What they need is actually more of a gap filler. The problem is I don't see another circumstance where I'm really interested in Cousins either. Like Dallas now, especially with getting Doncic, they have the issue of just not really being in the right age range. And Boogie's 27, so it's not like he's ancient or anything like that. But so absent anything better, I think my preference would be for him to go back to New Orleans. Yeah, I think so. And there's some potential there, unfortunately, with his recovery timeline that they're really only going to look better and better when he's not out there just because of the shift in their style and play, how successful successful they've been with Miritich in the lineup. I think there's there's a lot of room for them to sign him to a pretty big deal and then come to regret it kind of quickly. But as you mentioned, the market for him is not huge. So maybe that deal isn't as big as, as the Pelicans might fear. Maybe concerns over his injury combined with the bloated center market combined with the fact that half the league hates DeMarcus Cousins and doesn't want to bet anything on you know bringing him to their team. And you know as, as we kind of dance around situations like Dallas where I don't think you want to be – if you're a team that's kind of into a rebuild or turning the corner on a rebuild, I don't think you want to put yourself in a situation where DeMarcus is the dominant personality on a young team. It just seems like a pretty precarious place to be. And so then you're looking at teams like, okay, how do the Wizards get into that conversation? How do the Hornets get into that conversation? How do some of these teams that, that really need a lot of help but don't have a lot of don't have great immediate options in terms of, you know, they don't have either the cap space to sign him or, you know, aren't able to put together like kind of a sign and trade scenario. And maybe that's an area where teams like the Bulls, for example, step up and take off some salary from someone so they can get into the boogie sweepstakes. Yeah, that could be. And with Washington, from a personality, kind of the basketball soap opera part of this, 
I think that would certainly be fascinating because, you know, the connection with with DeMarcus and John Wall, of course. But from a basketball perspective, what concerns me about it is the ceiling for the Wizards oftentimes is on the defensive end. They've been very hit or miss. I had hoped for more out of Scott Brooks as their coach. That was the one element that I really did respect from his Oklahoma City tenure was that those teams always got after it defensively, including when they were very young. And they haven't really done that in Washington. So I understand that you kind of are making a ceiling play offensively of, okay, we're getting, we're getting him. DeMarcus Cousins is a phenomenally talented player. We're probably not going to get him to care on defense because he doesn't most of the time, but maybe they're going kind of more in that model like Minnesota to a point last year where it's like, Hey, we'll just put together a really good offense. And if the defense comes together, so be it. I guess you could make an argument that considering most of the moves that would get Washington to the point where DeMarcus Cousins would be there, wouldn't necessarily take away interesting players. So like theoretically, like let's say the deal at its fundamentals is Otto Porter and DeMarcus Cousins as the principals. I guess you could make an argument that makes both teams more interesting, assuming New Orleans got somebody they were happy with to man, to kind of like sop up those center minutes. Yeah, and the fact that that's kind of the most interesting option on the board for DeMarcus, I think, speaks to just how weird this market is. Because, in, you know, DeAndre Jordan's going to run into a lot of the same things where as soon as you start kind of playing fantasy basketball with the centers in the league and you're trying to, you know, match up, you know, match make the right situations for everybody, there aren't really that many teams that need good centers. And, you know, whether you're a center in the DeAndre range, who's more of, you know, a lob finisher and a rebounder, or you're a center in the DeMarcus range, who's much more widely skilled, but, you know, a more problematic player in some ways. I think both, when you're talking about, you know, the salary range that they're going to be looking for, it's really hard right now if you're an NBA executive to talk yourself into that kind of commitment or that kind of trade if you're going to have to give up a player as good as Otto Porter to really get into that conversation for those guys. It's also an even bigger challenge because of the options that are out there, not only in the free agent market, you know, you have Derek Favors and DeAndre, as you mentioned, potentially being in the market, all the restricted guys, but also everybody else that's under contract. I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of talented centers, players who, you know, maybe they're not the, the, the best player on a good team or anything like that, but are still competent that teams are just looking to unload because they have such a supply. Nick Vucevic is probably a good example of this. Not a perfect player, you know, more of, to me, more of a rotation player than a starter on a good team. But if you could basically get him for nothing, it becomes hard to commit 60 million, 70 million, 80 million to DeMarcus Cousins. And it's very possible that Vucevic is not the best center in terms of trade value propositions that's on the market without really expecting to take anything back. Yeah, it's crazy to think that you could get a player like that basically just for taking on a salary almost for free. But given the way the market has landed, given Orlando's situation, I don't think it's the craziest thing. And that is going to be such a massive part of the negotiations for favors in particular, because I don't know what he's looking for. He, I, I was thinking about this earlier today that he is a good represent a good calibrator for what this market ends up being because he's sort of an anomaly and that's what makes him interesting here because favors is young but he's also unrestricted i mean so he, this is going to be i believe his age 26 season coming up 
And he also is a center, but not quite a center, you know, because he can play power forward. He might think of himself as a power forward. That's been his starting position most of the time with the Jazz. So does he get treated like a like an older player than he is because he's been in the league so long? Does he get treated like a center, even though he can be a little bit different? And also with all of these, you, you don't want to ever read a lot uh, into the whole market from one guy because it also depends on what they want. You know, maybe he would like to be in Utah. Maybe he wants something different just because of he's been there a while, you know, kind of just to maybe have more of an opportunity to shine offensively, whatever it is. But I find him a good calibrator for all of the reasons I said. To me, he's one of the more fascinating players on the market and a guy who, you know, not only, as you mentioned, positionally speaking, some teams are going to value him completely differently than others, whether they think he's going to be you know, a worthwhile starting center or not. But also just with the way the league is trending where, you know, favors is not a super traditional power forward. He has a little bit of range. He can switch a little bit on defense to guard smaller guys. I think he's more modern than he gets credit for. And we saw that some in the playoffs where, you know, even with him and Gobert on the floor together, that was, you know, a lot of times Utah's most effective postseason look. But as we're getting deeper and deeper into these draft classes where the bigs are really encouraged to shoot, where young bigs in the league are are, stretching further and further from the basket, I feel like it's going to get easier over time to find guys who complement favors really well. And the fact that he is, you know, 26 going into, you know, 20, going on 27, in three years, he might look like an even better fit with a lot of teams than he does right now, just because I feel like the nature of the, that position, whether it's power forward or center around him, is going to be changing so much. And so the fact that, you know, he really can only you know, shoot from mid range and from the corners, and that, you know, he's got a post game, but it's not an every play kind of post game. I feel like he's going to fit into a nice little niche for a lot of different teams. It's just a matter of who wants to kind of invest in that now. How do people feel about his injury history? And again, as we mentioned, do you do you really see him as kind of a four or a five? But personally speaking, I would love to see him stay in Utah. And, and same with Dante Exum, for that matter. I think there's a lot to like about the mix of players they have. And if you're betting on Donovan Mitchell taking any kind of substantive step forward, I think that that group has has good enough chemistry to really ride it out. I'm totally on board with Exum. I think that the we didn't get to see the combination of Exum and Donovan Mitchell very much this year. But my biggest criticism of Exum for year, for a while now has been that he's not re- super reliable creating for himself and others. He has a great first step. He's still super fast, but it's just not really who he is. That's part of the reason why I don't necessarily love the term point guard, because I don't think he's great at running the show. If Donovan Mitchell couldn't shoulder those responsibilities, you open up a lot of things. We talked about this a little bit with LeBron. Mitchell is a little bit different because we don't know what position he's going to be eventually defensively, but you have that. Favors gets into a couple of different areas because if his price starts dropping far enough, maybe you get into interesting ones. And, and what I'm thinking about this is Portland. So Portland probably sees Zach Collins as their center of the future. There's certainly you know enough reason considering the assets they gave up to make that trade, and he, it seems like he had a pretty good year. But Favors on that, if you add him to their mix, would be absolutely fascinating because I think he could work defensively as a center primarily in what Terry Stotts is trying to do, but you also could have circumstances where he plays power forward next to whoever, and theoretically, if they could acquire him, the problem is that they're probably dealing with the taxpayer mid-level. I haven't gone through their books. I, this is just a hypothetical I thought of on the fly to see whether they could give him more than that. But with favors, it's hard to think of the the perfect fit for him as being like a starter on a really good team other than Utah, which is part of the, which is why I would go in that direction. But I could see him as a useful player in a couple of different capacities. And so what he, again, what he prioritizes will be fascinating. 
I really love that fit with him and the Blazers. I think you're spot on in terms of the priorities of the defense they run and the style they play. I think he would be a great match for. I think, you know, especially if you're looking at potentially losing Ed Davis on that team, I think favors, replaces a lot of what Davis does well, but also brings some different things in terms of offensive capability. And I think they're, they're stuck in a weird spot because on the one hand, you probably want to bring back Yusuf Nurkic just on the, on the basis of, you know, him being one of the better center options available, but you may not feel super comfortable about him playing huge minutes all the time. You want that insurance policy. You want the flexibility to go in a different direction. I'm not sure the feasibility of financially them bringing both or, you know, having both of those guys at the same time, if that's doable or not. But if they could pull that off, I think that would, that would really serve them well. Preliminarily, it looks like they would have to sacrifice some some depth to make it happen. They'd also do have some bad contracts. They could give maybe they could kill two birds with one stone, pay some real assets to give up bad contracts, and then make, maybe make it work. But it, it would be challenging. That would make the Blazers. I think that would really change their ceiling, though. And if Nurkic gets to the point where he's going to take his qualifying offer, the math actually gets easier then. The problem there is timing, though, because maybe what what happens for Portland, theoretically, if let's say they think favors, if they can get him for the mid-level exception, is worth it. Maybe what they say is, we'll just roll with whatever comes with Nurkic. And so if somebody makes an offer that's unworkable for Portland, then they don't match. And if they make an offer that they can, they do. Or if he signs his qualifying offer, then awesome. Then you get Nurkic for one year. He does get veto rights in that circumstance on any on any trade because that's what happens when you sign a qualifying offer because if you get traded, you lose your bird rights. He still might approve a trade just because he might see the writing on the wall at that point. But yeah, with favors, I kind of feel like there could be a diamond in the rough with him, just w- a team that we're not thinking about. Another one of those could theoretically be Dallas. I just think he's a wonderful fit offensively as the center in Carlisle's system. I feel that way with almost every center that can't shoot and is athletic, reasonably athletic. So he's he's far from it. And with favors, depending on what his price point is, this is the same argument with a couple of these other guys in this class. In the mock-off season, Kevin Pelton went with Montrez Harrell on almost the same idea, which is if you can get a guy who could start, but you're getting them at a backup or strong backup price, then you can make it work wherever it goes from here. So if Dallas has another year where they're still figuring it out, they get a good draft pick, the best guy available is a center, you can draft a center. If next summer there's a, a center on the free agent market, you just sign that guy. So maybe there's, an, again, where if cousin, uh, sorry, if favors value drops far enough, maybe you can start to create some of these possibilities where they wouldn't have existed before. Yeah, I mean, that's almost almost like the inverse of the Vucevic situation you were talking about before, where realistically he's probably not a starting big. Uh, but as a more of a rotation guy, and yet you're kind of paying him starting money based on the conditions in which you had to resign him. If you can get somebody on the other side of that, like Harrell, like Favors, like you know any number of bigs could be in this market. I think those teams could be in a real in a real cushy spot, you know, two a year or two down the line into these deals. Plenty more to talk about with Rob Mahoney, but first a message from our friends at TrueCar. These days, news travels lightning fast. Just great if you're a sports fan. Between status updates, breaking news notifications, and Twitter feeds, you can always be up to the minute on every team and every game. While this is great for sports, it's the opposite when it comes to buying a car. Go online and you are bombarded with numbers. Invoice, list price, dealer price. It's hard to know how to recognize a good price. Not anymore. Introducing True Price from True Car. It's the only price you need to know because it is exactly what you will pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories. How do you know if your True Price is a great price? Because True Car shows you what other people paid for that same car you want, so you know how to recognize a good price. And your certified dealers know this, so they set up their True Price competitively so they can win your business. So when you're ready to buy a new 
or used car, visit TrueCar to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Also wanted to give another quick reminder about the survey that you can do to really help us out. It helps the podcast stay free to download, and it tries to align advertisers with my audience. So the more accurate information they have on the audience, the better it is. It takes no more than five minutes. Go to podcastone.com slash my survey, or just go to podcast one and click on the survey banner. If you've done in the past, thank you so much, but we need a new one. That's what they're trying to do is get more accurate information. So you can help out Real Gem Radio and Podcast One by going to podcast one slash my survey, or go to podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. I generally don't want to focus too much on restricted free agents in this just because they have so much less agency in terms of where they end up going. But I am the the two guys and they're going to be talked about together for a lot because it is an eye of the beholder circumstance with Aaron Gordon and Jabari Parker. Jabari, to me, he he runs into this problem. It's a strange thing. I still like Jabari's potential a lot, but I think Giannis's best position pretty definitively at this point is power forward. And that is a luxury because the reason you play Giannis at the three sometimes is because you don't have enough threes. If you have enough wings to play him at the four, I think that's pretty naturally his fit. He can even play some center. So that makes it harder for Jabari just because Jabari's his jump shot's not all the way there yet. And then defensively, he's awful except for one half of one game in the playoffs. But Aaron Gordon is in many ways a a greater clarifier for me in a couple different ways. So one is just what Orlando is getting at. They have changed front offices since he was drafted, but also because the most logical suitor for Aaron Gordon, there are actually two. So one is the Indiana Pacers. We don't really know what the Pacers are other than Victor Oladipo and probably Miles Turner. And then the other one would be he could be the power forward for the Utah Jazz. And if you put him on on both of those teams, they don't need that real offensive engine so Gordon can slide into a better spot offensively. And then defensively, both of those teams are a little bit unsure in terms of what their defensive scheme is going to be. Now, with the Jazz, we know that Gobert is going to be Gobert, but maybe they could switch more stuff one to four. They could do some other things. And with Indiana, it's just a giant question mark because Miles Turner hasn't really delivered on all around capacity defensively. He certainly has some strengths. And so I would actually be totally happy with Aaron Gordon in either one of those places. And I would actually be pretty intrigued by Jabari in Utah if that presented itself. Yeah, at this point, I would just love to see Aaron Gordon in different circumstances altogether. Just a chance at a fresh start, a chance at, you know, seeing how he looks alongside different kinds of teammates. Indiana was one that, as you mentioned, really sang to me in that regard, just from a pace, from a throttle standpoint, from a guy who can really run the floor alongside Oladipo. The pressure that those guys could put on teams, if you can get Aaron Gordon operating at the same level of thrust that Oladipo does, a guy who's going to be running the floor every possession that hard, that's going to be a really, really tough team to keep up with in a way that, you know, lots of teams play fast, lots of teams want to push the pace. But the way Oladipo played last season and kind of the uh, what he demanded of a defense to keep up with him, I think was really, you know, really, really challenging. And that's one thing if you have Thaddeus Young and Demonta Sabonis alongside you, and a very different thing when you have a guy like Aaron Gordon who can, you know, not only catch and finish with the best of them, but is going to be a great ball handler for you at that position who can make some plays. And I think for that, you know, on the playmaking front, he would be really interesting for the Jazz as well, as you said. You know, very different from Favors in a lot of ways. But to have that kind of athletic punch, to have a guy who's going, you know, yet another secondary playmaker on that team where Utah probably needs, you know, a little more touch of, you know, go-to scoring, a guy who's who's really comfortable being a lead so that Mitchell doesn't have to do it all the time. But if you're not going to get that, I think getting Gordon in that kind of role could be really great. And 
I, I don't know that Orlando is really going to let him go. As you said, it's it's not really up to Gordon in this case. The agency just isn't there. But if you're going to highlight the situations that I think could make the most sense for him, given where the rosters are right now, Indiana is at the top of the list, I think. And I want to talk a second about Jabari on the Jazz. I mean, so Jabari to me has a higher offensive ceiling than Aaron Gordon does. They have different strengths and weaknesses. Gordon, I think, can fit in better as a smaller piece of the puzzle than Jabari just because of what he does well. But part of the appeal of Parker on the Jazz is that they have a kind of a cure-all defensively. So any of those issues, you know, certainly he can create messes that Gobert has to clean up and maybe that'll lead to some foul trouble. But defensively, I think the Jazz is about as good of a situation as you could expect for Jabari Parker anywhere. I agree. And he's in a tough spot where if Jabari were an unrestricted free agent, let's say, you know, last year he took up the qualifying offer, this year he gets to, to really pick his team. I think there could be a lot of interesting situations as kind of, you know, a year to, to really rehab his reputation, to show what he can do on the court. I think that could be a really interesting spot for him. It's going to be much tougher given that some team is really going to have to love him and where he is in his game right now to be able to throw a deal at him that the Bucks won't match. Now, I think there's clearly a limit to that. I think Milwaukee has their own hesitation about Jabari's future. But the Jazz are a really good fit there. And some of that is the fact that you know, with the way that they move the ball, Jabari isn't a great ball mover in him, you know, on his own, but I think he can kind of get there. He can get into that rhythm of everyone around him is doing it. If it's an infectious team thing versus with the Bucks, it, it seemed like, you know, Bledsoe and Giannis and Middleton were sometimes on different pages. And when, you know, throwing Jabari into that is not really conducive to his ball moving success. But if it's really part of the ethos of your team, I think he can move pretty well without the ball. And he's a guy who has such a, such a shifty offensive game where I think if you're looking at guys who are going to be attacking closeouts, who are going to be, you know, looking to create in some tight spaces on occasion, all the things that, you know, there are times in the playoffs where Joe Ingles gets the ball and you just wish he could do just a little bit more with it. You know, Ingles is a great player, but he certainly has his limitations in that regard. That's an area where I think Parker could really, could really do well for them. And, you know, just like they needed Donovan Mitchell to take a lot of shots, to use a lot of offense last year, they still need guys to do that alongside him. They need, you know, if, especially if they're going to bring Ricky Rubio back as their starting point guard, and they're going to have Gobert at center. Those guys are going to use a pretty finite number of offensive possessions. If you get Parker in there as well, I think you're starting to get a little closer to a healthier balance alongside Mitchell. On top of that, something that would be exciting to see the Jazz get into is the structural incentive to run a little bit more. Probably you, you could either do that with not Gobert running because you don't. There's no benefit to that, or it could just be some some other lineups out there just going to some less conventional stuff and. They have some talent there, but getting more, whether that Aaron Gordon could fit in there or Jabari, just just to create more opportunities. And really, that's an idea that I think is underappreciated with with playing up tempo is just the idea of getting a few more easy baskets. It's actually something that Utah does through their offense in the half court by having as much ball and player movement as they do. Is sometimes you're going to create a seam, you take advantage of that. If you have good passers, they can find a guy early. Joe Ingles is very good at this as well. They can do that same idea in transition as long as you don't do what something that Orlando had some trouble with this past year, which is running and basically saying we have to get a shot in transition, you can go to this idea, I've called it before, kind of like a two-pronged approach where you go hard in transition, but if something if something that is juicy isn't there, then you actually run your normal stuff. And I think Quinn Snyder is actually at the right place to do that. And 
Brad Stevens has largely succeeded at that with the Celtics. I think they could actually go a little bit harder in that direction too. But I'd like to see Utah get to the point where they can do that, where it is a reasonable option because then that puts the kind of puts the pedal to the metal for for Snyder. And you know maybe he still doesn't want to run a lot, but at least it would give him an opportunity. I think you know for those of us following the NBA, we love to look at teams and and look at their rosters and their lineups and say, okay, we can clearly identify exactly what they're going to do based on their personnel. This is a running team this is a floor you know this is a, a pick and roll team this is a you know pace and space team etc and it doesn't have to be like that one to five exactly like you mentioned with a guy like gobert i mean look at the rockets and what they did with clint capella where sometimes capella is running the floor you know running straight at the rim and he's able to contribute and transition that way sometimes he's just getting a rebound or blocking a shot and triggering it and if you have enough you know smart creators of offense around him, guys who are going to run the floor, other shooters and finishers, he doesn't have to be an instrumental part of every fast break. And in fact, you probably don't want him to be. You want to you know, conserve energy where you can get it. And if you can get a four on three going the other way or a three on two going the other way without him, all the better. And it, I think what's really important there in terms of that kind of two-pronged approach you were talking about is having ball handlers who have great discretion in their games. And I think Rubio is at that point in his career where he knows kind of when to push and when to dial it back. And Mitchell is starting to get there in terms of really understanding those situations. And, you know, Mitchell can be a really effective finisher, even when, you know, even under duress, even when contested in the right circumstances. And I think picking out where those circumstances are in transition and understanding really when to attack, regardless of, you know, who they add and what the personnel are for next year, could be a really important part of that team's growth. Something I was thinking about during this conversation is that there are not a ton of great free agents for those real up-tempo spots. I mean, there are guys who can run, but generally speaking, they're a little bit more limited in terms of skill set. And a lot of the centers that are, or big men that are on the market, let's make it a little bit more broad, aren't necessarily great for an up-tempo system either. Like there are guys like Dirk Nowitzki, who's good for a force, who's good from a forcing perspective, but he certainly doesn't help you push the pace. And so I, I think that one of the big constraints that's going to come into the league, and maybe some of this is going to be also just going to some of these young, flawed wings, guys like Ojale, who I really like, but he he does have certain strengths and weaknesses to come to the table is I, I mean, you see this all over. Rudy Gay is a good player, certainly. And Bob Mute, Wade, depending on what happens there. I mean, Wade's a great passer, so we can keep fast breaks in other ways. But there aren't really those, you know, the, as many of the like young Corey Brewers. There's current old Corey Brewer, but there's no, there aren't as many of those young guys on the market that are good enough to play now and that really kickstart your transition game. Yeah, I think the the one that would come to mind for me might be Will Barton, just as a guy who he could even be out there, you know, for a mid-level at either level, depending on what his market is. And I think there's, you know, kind of varying interest in him around the league, but a guy who can really push the pace, who can handle and pass. The ball might stick in his hands a little more than you might like at times, and he can be a little bit wild, a little unpredictable. But if you're looking for someone to kind of do that for your second unit especially, I think he could be interesting. Otherwise, yeah, I think there's some pieces that fit, Maybe in more of an up-tempo style, if you, you know, depending on what Thad Young does with his option, I think he could be interesting running the floor for a lot of teams. Obviously, you know, Trevor Reza, J.J. Reddick, some older guys who are more kind of run to the corners or run to the perimeter. But the guys who are, are really kind of stirring the drink in those fast break situations, those those players really are not out there right now. Unless, I, I guess, you're you're really high on Alfred Payton or something like that. 
Yeah, it, it is going to be a kind of a challenge to, to reconcile a lot of these fits. And I was thinking about Isaiah, and it's such a complicated circumstance with his surgery and with his issues. And what I think would be the best circumstance for him, it's not what I expect, because there are a lot of reasons why it won't happen. But what I would love to see him go to is a circumstance of a team that is good enough to succeed without him, but that could bring him in let's say in February, and incorporate him at that point, largely it's probably going to be as a as a guard off the bench. So that's the problem, though, with Isaiah, is that there are teams that could benefit from him for the whole season, like Orlando, depending on what they end up seeing with, with their timeline and everything else. And then there are other teams that he would be more marginalized on. And so I, I just don't really know what I want for him. I guess it's, just, I, I think I'll kind of, I'll note when I see it. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm not really the highest on his game in general right now, especially, you know, his, the trouble he had separating last season and, you know, fully understood that he's coming back from a pretty major injury that, you know, that's going to, to really color his play in a lot of ways. It would make me very nervous because you're already looking at, you know, probably one of the worst defensive point guards in the league, at least one of the worst defensive guys who considers himself a starter. And on top of that, if he's not contributing offensively in the way that, you know, you're accustomed or you're expecting, if he's shooting sub 40% from the field, you're, you're really in a rough spot because you have to plan around him in so many ways to make him successful. And I think, you know, that's where the job Brad Stevens and the Boston Celtics did was, was so incredible in terms of really maximizing what he did well. Thomas had just a lights out season in so many ways, but the infrastructure was really there. And now it's like, even when you think about teams that, you know, like in my head, the Bucks I think, could do for a change at point guard. You know, I don't think the Eric Bledsoe situation worked out as well as certainly I thought it would. I would I would think as well as the Bucks thought it would. But yet, IT is not really a guy there because you're at risk of taking the ball out of the hands of your actual best player because Isaiah thinks that he should be that guy. He thinks he should be in that kind of role. And so he's a guy who, you know, whatever situation you drop him into, you kind of risk sucking a lot of the oxygen out of the room. And so I wonder if maybe it's something like, you know, putting him in Detroit, putting him, yeah, I don't, I don't even know, because so, so many teams are so well established at point guard. You know, if, if you're not really selling him on a backup role and he, he really understands exactly what he's coming in there to do, I'm not sure how he's going to be a healthy influence on your team. I like that you brought up Detroit. That was one that I thought of as well. Milwaukee, if, if you're going kind of more on the ambitious side. And another one, depending on how it works with their young guys is the Clippers. I don't really know at this point what the Clippers want, what their goals are for the 2018-19 season. And we're going to get some clarification on that with DeAndre Jordan, whatever happens there in the next week or so. But, you know, they have Patrick Beverly. He's coming off microfracture surgery. Thankfully, it sounds like he's doing pretty well. They, of course, drafted Shea and they drafted Robertson. But I don't know really where they are in all of this. Like, do they want to be competitive this upcoming year? Do they want to take their foot off the gas pedal, keep their draft pick, maybe a, a, like woo Kawhi Leonard? Like, they're, I, I just don't know what they want, which makes it really hard to calibrate. Yeah, the market, the market for Thomas is so strange. I mean, I, there's, would there be some cruel poetry if he came back and was the Suns veteran point guard that they're looking to bring in? Would that be, would that be too weird a situation for him to step back into? 
Well, I had thought about the idea of him going to Miami and playing with Dragic again, <laughs> which is in some ways even weirder, or going back to Boston if they theoretically traded Terry Rozier, which I don't think they will. But yeah, I mean, and actually that is one of the stranger possibilities that's out there that I don't think people are talking about. It's not necessarily with Isaiah, but with potentially Avery Bradley. Like if he wants to do a one-year make good, I would assume he would go somewhere where he would start. But there's an outside shot that maybe Boston's just going there like, hey, you did really well for us. You can come back. God, that that team with one more capable defender on the wing or capable mm-hmm. defender at the point is you know just just what the league needs right now for sure. Yeah, and with Bradley, a lot of parallels there to to Derek Favors, where you're sitting there going, okay, well if he wants, I don't know, let's say ten million a year or close to that. Well, there aren't many teams that can offer that. You can make an argument that none of them will offer it. But if he starts to get into mid level exception land, there start to become some very interesting teams. I mean, if he got all the way to room mid level exception, depending on how the rest of their offseason goes, Philly becomes absolutely fascinating because then you can start to run into some of these different different configurations. I mean, their defense is already going to be really good if they could bring him in. In the mock-off season, I ended up with him on the Warriors, where, I mean, that brings a whole bunch of other stuff just because he's such a good guard defender that you could throw out some lineups there that would be absolutely filthy. But if he's a little bit pricier, then it narrows the field, and maybe that actually takes out some of the more interesting destinations. Yeah, the make-good options for him and Favors both are, are tricky in that way, where, you know, we were talking about Favors and the Blazers earlier. If you're Derek Favors and you're looking at, you know, a short, short term or a one year deal to kind of boost your value and then hit the market next year, you're probably not looking to split minutes with Yusuf Nurkic. And if you're Avery Bradley, you're, you know, I don't know to what extent you're really looking to be, you know, the Celtics 43rd best wing player. You know, like it's, it's tr- tricky for them and you can see how guys would talk themselves into taking a one year flyer with a team they know is not going to be very good, even if it's not going to spotlight some of their strengths in certain ways, just because at least they're guaranteed a certain level of role and minutes. Whereas, you know, if you're signing with a playoff team and you're Avery Bradley or Derek Favors, there are a lot of situations in which you are not going to get a lot of great shine over the course of a year. Another possibility which would require a lot of honesty from both the player's perspective and the team's perspective would in certain circumstances, and it has to be really narrow, be players going to suboptimal circumstances in terms of the quality of the team with an understanding or playing the game even this way that they will be on a different team, presumably via buyout, cut, whatever, for the end of the season. And I'm a little bit surprised we're not seeing that more often yet. There are circumstances like with Bellinelli in Atlanta where it kind of looked like that was where it was going to go, but he didn't sign with them. He was traded there from Charlotte. So maybe we even see some of those one-year contracts where, hey, I'm going to get the first half of the season to shine as an individual. And for the team, you're sitting there going, well, this at least makes us look credible, but it's not going to make us win a whole bunch more games. And then you have it where you're already out of the playoff picture, all that kind of stuff. And then you bring them in. The problem is there aren't at the beginning of the offseason, there aren't really many of those circumstances because the teams that are on the low end are going to have a lot of money to spend and they're not going to be spending a lot of that money. This would be more deals on the margins. So I don't think we're going to see a lot of it, but I think it would be fun to see. Yeah, who would even be the candidates for those kinds of deals? Is that like a is that a, a Brooke Lopez type deal? Is that a Rudy Gay type deal? Or are you looking for someone kind of even younger or more dynamic than that? I think you'd be looking more like Seth Curry, somebody who's trying to prove that he's healthy, but knows that there wouldn't be enough there. Avery Bradley is an option there. Maybe 
I mean, I, I don't know what Greg Monroe is looking for. Maybe he thinks that he could do, you know, be a big fish in a small pond for a little while, but he already did the small or medium sized fish in a big pond and that didn't work out super duper well for him. So yeah, it, it, it is hard. I, I just think that what's going to happen with a lot of these players, just because the market is so thin this year, is that they're going to see different opportunities out there, especially financially. And I'm fascinated to see what they choose. So like you talked about Derek Favors, you know, being a one year make good. My idea actually with this with him with the Blazers was not a one-year deal I was thinking more like a two or a three-year deal with them but the problem there is if players like him think that they're 10 million plus a year guys those guys might not take multi-year deals because they'd rather just get back on the market again yeah definitely I mean yeah Monroe I think at this point has seen every small pond the NBA has to offer I'm I'm very curious to see kind of where his priorities are because I think he's still a pretty good player who could help a lot of teams and I think maybe more than most kind of post up traditional bigs has really found a comfortable role for himself and seems to have kind of accepted it. So the fact that he could fill, you know, a similar role to what he did for the Celtics for a lot of different teams, that he's going to be comfortable coming off the bench, that he's at that stage in his career, I think could open up a lot of doors for him. And, you know, we'll have to see where him and, and those kinds of players like him ultimately land, but it's not, and, you know, Brooke is in that group as well. Maybe he, he's more intent on being a starter, but I'm curious to see kind of what place those players have in this league, especially Especially when, as we've talked about, you're looking for kind of athletic rim runners, you're looking for stretch bigs, who ends up holding the bag on on these kind of dinosaur types who are, are more post threats who, you know, maybe they dabble on the perimeter, maybe they've added that to their game, but fundamentally they're still kind of that old style center. And also, what kind of contracts do they get? Because you can roll the dice at, at the minimum, if that's what Greg Monroe's going to get, not a problem. I mean, there, even if he doesn't fit your system, he's just a really good basketball player. So like, one I've thought about with Monroe, I would love to see them go a little bit sexier, but he could make a return to the Bucks. I mean, he'd just be a capable man in their in their big rotation. We we have still have no idea what the health on Maker is going to be. John Henson, mm, I mean, they looked better when he wasn't on the floor in the playoffs, which is always concerning. So adding somebody else to that mix could be worthwhile. And they drafted small. They went with DiVincenzo. So they didn't they didn't really draft somebody who they're going to need to give minutes to. So maybe that's a possibility. But I mean, really any number of them. And thinking about Monroe, the, the way that you brought up makes me go also to the other side of the coin. And I don't mean that in terms of skill set. I mean that in terms of the coach. And one of the clarifying examples we're going to get this year is Steve Clifford. Steve Clifford had a lot of success, especially early on, with the Charlotte Hornets playing a very specific type of basketball, you know, the way they used big men, they changed over their personnel a fair amount other than, you know, Kemba and a few other guys while he was there. But what he's stepping into in Orlando is just a dramatically different collection of people. And so I'm excited to see what is a Steve Clifford team? Was that about who the groceries that were put, you know, in his kitchen and the way that he, or was it the way that he cooked those ingredients? And I, I have no idea. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think Clifford, there were at times, I think the Hornets over the, over the last couple of years ran really smart stuff, really good, good involved offense that was catching other teams off guard, that was really making the most of their personnel. And then obviously there have been times where, especially due to a lack of depth, they really just did not have the horses to execute stuff in a consistent manner. 
And so this is not a, you know, a dream solution in that regard for him in terms of going, you know, potentially to a team that, you know, would have that kind of talent, would have that kind of depth. You know, the Magic are a complete mess. You know, they, they don't really have the things that you would be looking for as a coach to say, okay, this is a team that can capably execute exactly what I want to run. So I'm not even sure if we're going to get a good look in, in any kind of uh, short-term manner in terms of what a Steve Clifford team really looks like just because of the hand he's been dealt there as well. Yeah, I, I it's going to be a lot to take in. And with all of the coaching changes that happened, I mean, we're going to have to see what Detroit is. And they're not going to probably be doing a whole heck of a lot this offseason. But what they look like, what the Raptors, you know, what the difference between Casey and Nurses will be important in terms of the kind of the long-term scope. They also have a fascinating free agent decision with Fred Van Vliet a guy who closed a lot of games for them, but depending on if, if the market bears some real fruit, and it could for him. And not I mean, he's arenas limited, which means it's a narrowing in terms of his money for the first two years. I don't think he's going to get the Jeremy Lin and a Max or anything after that. But I wonder with some of these teams, I talked about the idea of honesty before, how some of these teams are feeling about where they are. And with Toronto, I mean, they just had the most successful regular season in franchise history and then just had that absolutely crushing end of their playoff run. And so what is their ownership group? What do do they see from this? Do they think running it back is a good idea? Do they really want to retool? And if they do want to retool, how do they do it? Yeah, I mean, the way the timing of their coaching change and the way that that process played out is only adding to the confusion to me in that regard, because you would think with, you know, Casey's quick dismissal, okay, this is a team that that really wants to really wants to substantively change a lot of what they do. And yet then you hire an assistant from that same team who was very involved in how they played last year, who had already gotten a lot of credit for that team's transformation and the way they were able to modernize their offense. And so what's, what's the next step you can take with basically, you know, a holdover coach from that same staff who was already heavily involved in what that team was running? Especially when, as you mentioned, you don't have a lot of options to really turn over that roster. You know, the most attractive players on your team are guys who are not going to play all that well in terms of a trade market, even if you want to go that route. There are, you know, teams are not chomping at the bit to get Serge Ibaka. The, the, you know, the market, even on a guy like DeMar DeRozan, can be pretty contextual and pretty limited. Kyle Lowry has his fans in the league, but he also has, you know, a, a large group of teams in the league that do not want to be investing in the Kyle Lowry market right now. So, you know, they, I think, are going to end up kind of stuck where they are just by virtue of not really having a lot of avenues to too significant turnover, to adding a lot of talent. You know, maybe they move Jonas Valanciunas, maybe not, given that, you know, we've, we've talked extensively today about how limited the center market is, just given, you know, the glut of qualified options there and how every team seems to be kind of set in a lot of regards. And I don't see how that wouldn't pinch the Raptors as well as they're trying to, to find a new home for Valanciunas potentially. Are there any other free agents that, you're particularly, you know, interested or invested in in where they end up. I would love to see Marcus Smart outside of the Boston cocoon, and I don't know how realistic that is, given that he's obviously an important part of that team. You know, I think there's a lot of different avenues to him staying there at least for one more year. But I'm not sure what the best fit for him is. He's one of those guys who kind of as soon as you plug him into a really pivotal role, you start to see his limitations in vivid color. I don't know that you want him to be your lead ball handler on an every possession basis. I don't know that you want him to be your starting two guard, given the fact that he's really you know not, not a great shooter unless you have a lot of shooting around him. So I, I kind of wonder if he might be a guy who who gets into the mix for for Phoenix too. Uh, you know, a team that's looking for point guards. Smart's only you know twenty three, twenty four years old. He's going to be a great defender who could slide in alongside Booker. 
and who, you know, can help create offense, but because Booker's going to be doing a lot of ball handling, you're not leaning on him in the same way you might in another situation. And so that's one that kind of intrigues me where the Suns are obviously very young, but they're a team that's young and wants to get better pretty quickly. They're a team that has an obvious hole. And I think Smart could make a lot of sense for them if they're looking for a guy who can, I think he's, from a personality standpoint, kind of interesting, but he could be a type of culture setter for them in a certain sense. From an effort standpoint, from an investment in defense, he could be just the kind of guy that that you want to to kick the ass of your younger players. That's a good idea, and I have one that's on a similar similar kind of angle. Marcus Smart as a pacer, because then you can bounce around. He can be offensively. The shooting limitation would certainly affect it. A lot of what the Pacers did was built on having five guys who were capable shooters, but. The maybe the best answer to the how do we get a small forward when there are no small forwards on the market is get a guy who's kind of a little bit of everything. Yeah, I mean, especially as the one guy on the market who is you know part point guard, part small forward, that that flexibility could be really nice for them. Especially you know if you're the Pacers, I think you have all the reason in the world to feel really confident about putting the ball in Oladipo's hands, about you know the role he's going to play in your offense, and even if kind of the role a guy like Sabonis is going to play as a secondary playmaker, as a guy who can facilitate from that perspective, you know, whether it's pick and roll or high post or whatever it may be. And that opens the door for Smart to, to do more cutting, to do more off-ball play for them, to help push the ball in transition and be completely wild, but in a productive way. I mean, if if you're looking for a place where Marcus Smart could really thrive and be an essential part of that team, I think starting from the framework of who was the team that last employed Lance Stevenson in an effective manner could be a great starting point. I like it. Anything else you feel like we should discuss, considering we're just a couple days away from July 1st? Those were all the big ones for me. I mean, there's going to be some, I, I imagine, some really unexpected trades coming up. Well, that's Guys actually who- the last thing I wanted to bring up, which is I, I'm of the belief that if Kawhi kind of in his camp have it out there that there's a very narrow group of teams that he's willing to go to, I think that's going to completely scuttle the rental trade market for Kawhi just because I think San Antonio is going to see this a little bit differently and say, hey, we, we, we'd we rather roll the dice with him and see how this works out rather than get kind of like a middling offer. But I am open to the possibility of what I now call an Orlando offer, which is referring to the magic with Serge Ibaka, where it made no sense. And, you know, Hennigan, I think he made a mistake doing it, a pretty big mistake doing it. But I never want to foreclose on the on the possibility of a general manager, especially a desperate one, offering a trade that makes no sense. From from which perspective? Like, a, just an over-the-top trade for Yeah, Kawhi? like, let's say, I, I'm trying to think of what the right example is. Maybe it's like Phoenix, where we have all these young guys, we don't really necessarily have a place for all of them. Kawhi would make us a lot better. We know there's a pretty good chance he's not going to come back, but we think, I, I don't know exactly who that team is this time around, where it's like, they have enough talent to make a deal happen. They probably shouldn't make it because it doesn't make any sense. Like, maybe if things had gone differently, that could have been Dallas, but now I think Dallas knows what they are. But I don't know. I just, I, I, at this point in, in my punditry or whatever we want to call it, I just know not to foreclose on those sorts of like off the wall ideas anymore, though I, I don't really, I guess now that the draft has happened, it's not going to be Sacramento, thankfully. <laughs> And even just, too, as these teams get a better idea of what their options are and who's going to be available, does a C.J. McCollum trade materialize? Does, you know, is there something that could move the Wizards off of Bradley Beal? Is, you know, I think there are a lot of intriguing scenarios where some cores have kind of, you know, had their chance or, or for some reason has, you know, haven't been able to take that next step as a group, whether it's injury, whether it's fit, whether it's talent. And some teams might be looking to shake that up. And the interplay between that 
and how these teams are responding if they see, you know, another super team forming in LA. If all these stars are going to the Lakers, whether that makes teams be more or less aggressive will be really interesting. Or whether they try to delay their primes, whether some teams are looking to move off of guys who are in the prime of their career or a little older, you know, on the age curve, and how that affects the market you know, between all these teams is something I'll definitely be watching as well. Yeah, I'm very excited to see it. Thanks so much for taking the time. Anytime, Danny. Thanks again to Rob Mahoney for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read him at Sports Illustrated. You can listen to the Breakaway podcast, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Rob Mahoney, R-O-B-M-A-H-O-N-E-Y. Love having him on, and I'm really excited to see where this is going. We recorded this on Wednesday afternoons. That was before some of the more recent reporting about Kawhi and the Lakers as of when I'm recording this part. Nothing has been finalized or anything, so we'll see where it goes. But the offseason in the NBA now, it's always crazy. So really excited for that. I would assume that next week's episode of Real GM will relate to what has happened in the beginning part. No guarantees, because if something else happens, then we can talk about something else. But that's probably where this is going to go. And then the offseason stuff will will kind of flow from there. I'll do the I'm planning on doing the capsule stuff. So that means one episode on each division. Once we know more about where the teams are, I'm not obviously going to do that in early July because we don't know where these teams are going to be. But that will come in more August, September, that time frame. If you have any feedback on the show, that sort of thing can be valuable. Go to NBA at gmail.com. It's way easier to use email than Twitter because Twitter can be so ephemeral, even DMs, just because I can get a lot of them at points. If you take the time to write it, I promise that I will read it. I respond when I can. I make no promises there. And if you want to support the show, you can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player you're choosing. You can subscribe, download every episode. Those are absolutely great things to do in, in support can also, the most important thing beyond spreading it through word of mouth, which is always great, is by checking out our sponsors. So for this, Quip toothbrushes, amazing product. I've been using it for, I think, over a year now. Really, really like it. Getquip.com slash RealGM. You can get your first refill pack for free. And their toothbrushes start at just $25. So it's an amazing value. It's just, they get you in such good habits, not only in terms of the way you brush, but in terms of changing brush heads and everything like that. And doing it at a reasonable cost and having it be as lightweight and portable as it is, is just, it's a game changer. I I love it so much. Also, our friends at TrueCar, great place to buy a new and used car. You can check it out. And then if you haven't yet done it, please fill out our survey, podcast1.com slash my survey, or just podcast one and click on the survey banner because that's how we get information. We can take that to our advertisers and say, hey, this is who's listening to the podcast. And it can be really important for us. Less than five minutes, completely anonymous, of course. So check it out. If you want to see my other work, you know, whatever, wherever that goes for podcasting, that is preliminary the, or primarily the dunked on basketball podcast that Nate and I do will be going pretty much every day during the early part of it. You know, it'll depend on our travel schedule and I, cause we're both doing summer leagues and, and everything he's doing sports business classroom, of course, but we'll be doing that a lot. I will also hopefully be writing a lot. I also have a couple pieces I wrote for real GM about the mock off season, which you can hear on dunked on and the lessons I learned from that. And if you haven't listened to the mock off season, you should, I'm incredibly proud of it. I think it's the best thing I do maybe other than my book. It's the best thing that I do every year because I really, we, we all take the time to, to make sure that it's as good as it can be. And it's, it's a real challenge. Like it's at some point we could talk about that sometime on a show, just like the logistics of everything, but do that. And then for writing, I'm guessing a lot of it will be at the athletic this year. I mean, there that's where the majority of my cap work is going. I'll hopefully do some at real gym as well. Who knows? Maybe some of the sporting news. If so, just follow me on Twitter to find that out. But thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. 
The free COVID vaccine is FDA authorized for kids five and up. Do it for your besties and the resties. It's safe for your child and can help protect their friends. Do it for birthdays. And help protect your family. And game night. When you give your child the vax, you give them the power to learn. Do it for field trips. And camp outs. To experience. And big hugs. And to be a kid. Get your child vaccinated and give them the power. Paid for with Pennsylvania taxpayer dollars.